0: Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy 11. You can find that on page 155 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25. I'll give you a quick roadmap for the rest of the year and what we're going to be doing. Um, so the plan is to wind up our time in Deuteronomy for the semester uh, with the end of the year. So uh, we have... One more sermon in Deuteronomy before we go back to Acts at the beginning of the year. Uh, Next week, I'm going to preach a a Christmas sermon. So um, looking forward to that. But we're going to pick back up and finish Deuteronomy 11, and then next fall, we'll pick back up with Deuteronomy 12. So we're in a transition period here in the book itself, and it lends itself to that, so it worked out well. Um, But just so you know what's coming, uh, that's where we're at. So uh, we'll be finishing up Acts in the spring, when we finish that up, we're going to go to Esther in the summer, and then we're going to do Deuteronomy back in the fall. So there you go. There's the map for the rest of the year. But as we as we uh, come to Deuteronomy 11, uh, we want to consider um, the covenant that God has and how he has kept that and how the promises of those things Help us to understand the significance of Christmas and what Christ has done in that. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help but think, I, I think I use, my, I use marriage as an illustration quite often, I'm going to do that again this morning. Um, when Ellie and I got married, a lot of things changed. As we said our vows to each other before God, before our family and friends, we were joined together. We came in as two and we left as one. Of course, we maintained our distinctions. It's not like we're the same person. But as we were presented to the witnesses who had gathered there at the church, we were declared in the sight of all to belong to each other. Marriage is a beautiful, sacred thing. Jesus taught that when a man and a woman are married, they are joined together not merely by the institutions of man, But by God himself. Paul explains that the beautiful mystery of marriage is intended in fact to reflect and refer to the greater and more beautiful relationship of King Jesus to his church. In fact throughout the scriptures we regularly find marriage being used as a picture of God's relationship with his people. Now as we were preparing for the marriage ceremony I remember standing in the back of the church waiting to come out, and I remember being struck with just the, the certain finality of it all. My singleness was coming to an end. Ellie and I were about to take a step together from which there was no turning back. And to be quite honest, it was, a, it was a little intimidating to think about it in that moment. But I quickly realized that whatever I might be saying goodbye to in my life of singleness, I was gaining something far greater in Ellie when I was being joined to her. I can truthfully say that as I walked out with my groomsmen to take our place at the front of the sanctuary, I have never been so certain about a decision in all my life. I have never been more convinced that I was in a specific time at a specific place where I was specifically supposed to be at doing a very specific thing. Now, a lot changed about us personally as we became husband and wife. We were joined together in a covenant with each other. We made promises to each other about how we would live from that day forward. And that change immediately became noticeable to everyone from that day on. I no longer introduced Ellie or talked about her as my girlfriend or my fiance. Now she was my wife. My family became her family and her family became mine. Even my name was not my own anymore. I got to share that with her. The apartment that I had been living in uh, where I lived, where I lived, now became the apartment where we lived. The money in the bank was not my money; it was our money. My time, my loyalty, my resources—they all changed to reflect this transformation that had happened in relation to us, in relation to each other. Now, having been joined together in this covenant our lives began to reflect the expectations and the commitments that marriage contains. So I started wearing the ring that Ellie gave me that day as a physical reflection of our vows, a reminder to myself and a message to everyone else that we belong to each other. Now that ring and those changes are not what made us husband and wife. Anyone can buy a ring, you can buy one on the internet, put it on your finger. Plenty of people are living like married couples without actually being married. Now, that is not what made us a family. No, what made us a family was the covenant that we made before God, Him joining us together. That's what made that union happen. That's why I wear this ring. That's why those changes happen to my lifestyle, my priorities, and even my desires. We don't do those things so that... We can be married. We do them because we are married, and so it is in a much grander and greater way with God and His people in the covenant that joins Him and us, Him to us and us to Him, and that's what I want to look at with you as we as we study Deuteronomy 11 verses 13 through 25 and consider its message for us. Would you please stand with me as I read that for us this morning? This is the word of the Lord. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass to your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, and from the river, the river Euphrates to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, it is not difficult to see the theme of this passage, nor to recognize Moses' lesson for the people, instructing them to devote themselves to the Lord, to love him with all that they are, and to keep his commandments. By now, the the words of this passage should feel very familiar to you because Moses has been unpacking these instructions for the past seven chapters. In fact, from a, from a structural standpoint, we can think about this passage and really the rest of chapter 11 as a bookend to this section going all the way back to chapter five. Beginning in the next chapter, chapter 12, Moses is going to begin actually instructing the people in the specifics of God's commands for them. Whereas chapters five through 11 are really geared in making sure God's people were ready to receive these commands. So as we think about the purpose of this section within the book of Deuteronomy, we should recognize that Moses' goal this whole time has been to make sure the people were ready to receive the law with a right heart so that they would understand what it means to walk in holiness before God. That they did not see the law merely as a list of rules, but as instruction for them that was meant to bless them and keep them and instruct them in the way of holiness. In fact, that is the whole purpose of the book of Deuteronomy, to teach God's people how to walk in holiness with a holy God. As I have preached through the book of Deuteronomy, I have tried to be very careful to demonstrate something of the purpose of the law from the book of Deuteronomy to you, to show you that while the law is good, It identifies God's commands. It shows us the standard of holiness. It was never meant to justify us in the sight of God. We want to understand Deuteronomy through what Paul explains, especially in the book of Galatians, that the law was given to us to serve as a teacher and as a placeholder to prepare the way for the redemptive work of Jesus, who kept the law with his perfect obedience, who satisfied God's perfect justice in his work on the cross, who rose again on the third day to secure new life for his people and to secure in, a, in the household of God a place for all who trust in him. The trouble is that it is so easy for us to get wrapped up around the commands of the law and to get them twisted into thinking that these are rules and commands by which Israel was meant somehow to secure itself to God. It is very easy to fall under the trap of the Pharisees who tried to keep the law and yet failed because they did not honor Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law, and because they were blind to their need for salvation, convinced that they had met the standard of the law by keeping it outwardly, but who inwardly needed to be saved and redeemed. There is no doubt that this passage is aimed by Moses to the people of Israel to cause them to commit themselves to the conditions of the law, But as we look at what he says, I want to show you that these conditions were never meant to be the doorway through which God's people were meant to enter a covenant relationship with him, but rather that they were meant to flow from the relationship that the Lord had already established with them when he took them to be his people and gave himself to to them to be their God. So that brings us to consider our main idea this morning, which is this. Commit yourselves to keeping God's commands, not so that you may earn God's favor, but because in being joined to Christ, you have received that in him. So I want, you, I want you to encourage you this morning to commit yourself to obeying the Lord, because that is what he's worthy of. But to do that, not in a sense of making yourself righteous in his sight or earning his favor, but rather doing it because you have received that, especially in Christ. As we look at the Christmas season, that is what the message of Christmas is about. Because while we could not keep the commands of the law, we have not been able to uphold what God has declared to us of what it means to be holy and righteous. Christ has. And we do the things we do to love God and to walk according to his commands because of that work of Christ, not to make an entrance into that work. So as we look at this, there are three stages to this passage which serve us very helpfully as our three points, and they are all aimed at equipping God's people to do this very thing. And so these will serve as our three points. First, we want to understand the conditions of this covenant, we want to look at the conditions of the covenant. Second, we want to receive this warning not to be deceived so do not be deceived and finally we want to receive a charge to take up the tools of resistance that god has given us to resist deception and to live in righteousness with him so let's begin by looking at the conditions of the covenant now in true philip form this is going to be our longest point because I think it's the foundation of everything we're gonna say after this. So just kind of hang on to your hat as we break this passage down together and as we see how it practically applies to our lives here. So let's look at the conditions of the covenant. Now, in the beginning of chapter 11, Moses had us consider how God faithfully works to rescue and redeem his people while also visiting true justice on his enemies. Moses has also had us consider how deadly it is to act presumptuously towards God, thinking that we can somehow come to Him on our own terms, that we can have a relationship with Him that is of our making, not submitting to what He has given us. In verse 8, Moses charged the people to keep the commands of God so that they could enjoy God's gracious gifts, specifically the Promised Land to possess it and dwell in it from generation to generation." In verses 9 through 12, Moses emphasized how this land which Israel was about to receive was a land that was rich and wonderful. It was unlike the land that they had experienced in Egypt where they had to dig out a little moat so they could irrigate their garden and have vegetables. No, this land of Canaan is like a new Eden, it's like a garden ready to support Israel and to bless them, a place that Moses says that, that the eye of God is, is, is on to keep it and to make it prosper. So with that theme in mind, Moses continues on, and he tells the people that if they will indeed obey the commandments that, that God has given them, then God will continue to care for them, them in this land, that he will give them rain in due season. That, he will, that they will have grain and wine and oil, that their livestock will have grass. You will eat and be full, Moses says. The eye of the Lord will be upon them in this land and they will flourish in it as they flourish and dwell with the Lord. The picture Moses paints here is of a land that is flowing with, with the richness of God's kindness and love. It is a place where God's people dwell with him and where they live and thrive with him as, they keep, as he keeps his promise as he had given to their fathers. Of course, though, we see that they will have to work the new land. But Moses says that the hand of God will be upon them to give them what they need and to provide for them always. But there's a condition to the blessing. Israel will only get to enjoy the benefits of God's blessing if they are faithful to keep and obey his commands. They must keep the law. They must love the Lord their God and serve him with all their heart and with all their soul. If they fail to do this, Moses warns them that they will not receive the blessings of the covenant, but rather the curses. In verse 17, he says, "...then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you." That image of a fire there being lit. "...and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will not yield fruit." and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you." Now, these are the terms that God gave to Israel for living in the land of promise, in the land of blessing which He gave to them. They are reasonable and they are right just as the promises and the expectations that a wife and a husband have of each other in in the covenant of marriage are, are called to hold those things and to commit themselves to those things. In fact, as we look at what God requires of his people, we see that what he wants from them is not just an arbitrary list of rules, rule followers. No, he wants them to live reflecting the same sort of faithful, loyal love that he had graciously poured out on them in the first place. Again, Moses summarizes the commandments as loving the Lord and obeying his holy commands, commands which are for their good. It is on the condition of this that Israel could either expect to enjoy the blessings of God's great gift and supplying providence or to suffer his righteous anger and perish in his judgment. When God took Israel apart from the nations, when when he brought them out, And set them apart, he took them to be his. He gave himself to them to be their God. Dr. Peter Gentry points out that the structure and the substance of God's covenant with Israel shows that God's desire was to rule in their midst, in the midst of his people, as their king, to direct and guide and instruct their lives and their lifestyle, yet not. In, in the distant relationship of a faraway king, but rather as a sovereign who is personal in the context of a relationship of love and loyalty and trust. There, there are many other ancient law codes from this era in history that we can look at, there are many other ancient covenants between kings and their vassals that we can compare God's covenant with Israel to. And while there's similarities between those things... There are some profound differences. And the profound differences come down on how personal and how unique God's covenant with Israel was, that the commands He gives to them are personal, that they are part of the relationship He has with them, that they are for their good. And they show that God meant to be personal with his people, not to rule as some king that lived in an ivory tower and got his tax money, but as a king who was with his people, personal with his people, to make them glory in his glory, to make them glad in himself, to reflect the same loyal love that he had for them in their relationship with him and with each other. God's sovereignty is not meant to be a barrier between himself and his people. In fact, it is meant to be the basis of his relationship with them. It's his faithfulness, his love, his perfection, his holiness, and his purpose to reflect his glory in and through his people that serves as the basis of his covenant with Israel. He set them apart, he called them out, he rescued them, he raised them up, he made them triumph, he made them holy all as a matter of his divine grace. And he gave them his commands to show them how they ought to walk in a manner that was worthy of him. And that's how we must read the conditions that Moses lays out for the people here. The conditions that God gave to Israel all hinge really on one condition, which was to walk in loyal love with him to live according to his commands, to, set, to be set apart and to live in the holiness of God as reflections of his amazing love, which he had poured out on them so graciously. God's covenant with Israel was unconditional in the sense that while they and their fathers were hopelessly lost in sin, held captive to Adam's curse, God graciously called them out, rescued them, redeemed them, gave them his name, poured out riches on them rather than the wrath they deserved, and made them a focal point in his work of redeeming humanity from sin. We must see that God never meant Israel to earn its way into his favor. Remember back to chapter 9, Moses told the people there that their relationship with God was not something that was a matter of their own righteousness because they were no better than any of the other nations. It was a matter of God setting them apart and loving them in a special way. The conditions of the covenant were conditions of righteousness for how God meant his people to live in a right relationship with him, conforming themselves to his rule, to live in his divine care. And it is important for understanding really how we as Christians are meant to live in a right relationship with God. The Bible clearly declares to us that none of us is righteous. We have all sinned and we all fall short of his glory. The Bible also declares to us that just as Israel was not able to earn its way to God in its own righteousness, we cannot earn our way to God through our own, un- our own righteousness either. Salvation is of the Lord, and it is received by faith. Faith in God, according to Hebrews 11, is the defining feature of God's people across all generations. As Paul demonstrates from the life of Abraham in Romans 4 verses 4 and 5, whereas the one who receives his wages, uh, it's not a gift for him, but something that is due to him. Paul says, the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he goes on to say in verse 16, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring." So just as Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness because he believed God and his promise, Paul says it will also be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. God's desire for his people has not changed, though in Christ he has expanded the benefit and the blessing of that promise to all the nations of the world. God has established Jesus Christ as King over all, the Savior who vindicates God's righteousness and rescues all who trust in Him from their sin. But even as God's people hope in the completed work of Christ for us, so God's people are also called to live in obedience to Him. In taking on a human nature, God the Son became our brother but he remains and has been highly exalted as our King. He commands our obedience. He deserves our obedience, not so that we may somehow earn our way into his favor, but rather so that we may show that his love and his spirit is in us, that we have been made like him. Jesus calls us to obedience so that we may reflect his holiness as a holy people for the sake of his glory. And just as Israel could not have expected to enjoy the blessings of God's covenant with them if they were not going to live according to his commands, so we cannot expect to experience the blessings of grace if we still go on living in the passions of the old master of sin and the flesh that once enslaved us. No marriage will thrive if a husband and a wife Are not dedicating themselves to keep their word and to live with each other in loyal love yes we are saved by grace through faith in christ but if we are saved the bible teaches us that we have been born again we are a new creature and if we have been joined to christ in this new covenant then the desires of our hearts and the works of our hands and the words of our mouths must reflect that. As James says, faith, if it does not have works, is dead. We show our faith by our works, by obeying our master's call and coming to the voice of our shepherd. Jesus says that if we love him, then we will do what he commands. That, does, that doesn't make him love us. Rather, it's the result of the way that he has, has already loved us. In 1 John, we are told that if we say we have fellowship with God and yet we walk in darkness, meaning we live our lives the same way we did before we made a profession, then we lie and do not practice the truth. The point is this. The conditions of God's covenant are not barriers to keep us out. They are battlements to protect us and to make us thrive and live in a right relationship with God. Works of faith are the fruit of faith and the work of Christ for us. So see the conditions of the covenant for what they are, a response to God's grace, not a means to earn God's favor, but a way to reflect holiness in our own lives as his effective grace works in us. Now that leads us to the second command we are given here, the second charge we receive from Moses, which is do not be deceived. In order for Israel to thrive in the promised land, they needed to love God, they needed to trust God, and they needed to obey God. Those are all reasonable things, things that come from a right relationship with God. God promised to bless Israel and to provide for them. In response, Israel was simply called to live in loving faithfulness to God. Even so, God knew that once the people were in the land, they would be severely tempted to abandon him and to go after old ways. In verse 16, Moses warns the people, take care, take care, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. So whereas Moses tells the people that God will bless them as long as they trust him and remain true to him, he warns them that if they allow themselves to be deceived and to go after other gods, false gods, it will lead in their destruction. This is so similar to what happened in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Remember, God put Adam and Eve in paradise. He gave them purpose and fellowship
1: He gave Adam
0: everything he could ask for. He provided him and his wife with with everything they needed. He set them up as king and queen of a perfect world with one command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. Well, they failed the test. And they failed the test because they believed a lie. They were deceived into thinking that God was not good and that they would be happier if they did not obey him. Moses knew that Israel would be tested too. He knew that once they settled into the land, they would be tempted and want to look like the nations around them. The very nations that God had called them out from. He knew they would be tempted to believe the old myths of the Canaanites before them that Baal was lord of these lands and that he was the real source of the rain that would make their crops grow and their flocks expand. So he tells them not to be deceived, to keep a guard over their heart like the angel that protected the way back into the garden of Eden, to not give into the delusion lest they perish like Adam and Eve, not enjoying the benefits of this good land, but the curse of their sin. And so his warning to them is a warning to us. We may not be tempted to bow down to stone, to idols of stone and wood and metal, but our fickle hearts are so quick to believe the same deception. Our gods may be known by different names that they are essentially the same, pride, lust, greed, power, self-reliance, so on, These are desires of our flesh identified to us by the Scriptures, and they are deadly. They are at war with the Spirit, Galatians 5, and they are evident because they are against God's commands, the very commands that are meant to protect us. The reason we are to be on our guard, to be rooting out these evil desires and putting them to death by the work of the Spirit, is because they are so deceptive, they look so good. So as Moses speaks to Israel, let me speak to you, brothers and sisters and sisters. Do not be deceived. Take up your armor. Take up the sword of the Spirit and wage war on these lies. What lies am I talking about? Well, first, at 340, first, that God will not give to his people all that he promises. Fight the lie that would have you believe that God will not give you what he has said. Moses tells the people that not only will God give them the land, but they will provide for them when they are there. But how easy is it when your family's livelihood is at stake to question God and to compromise, to seek deliverance from another source, especially when that seems to be working for someone else? We must guard our hearts or we will be easily lured into a trap of panic and discontent when things do not happen in our timeline or as we think they ought to. A second line we must be on our guard of is that I can somehow serve God and still love worldliness. Jesus warns us that a servant cannot serve two masters, especially when they are at war with each other. He says that such a servant will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 24. Satan, in his schemes, will do all that he can to present worldliness to you as prudence and good stewardship. He will tell you that the ends justify the means, that God wants you to take care of your family, and therefore, it is good to give your full attention to your job and the comfort of your family as a matter of first priority. He will always seek to chain you to the cares of this world so that you do not have time to think of what God has really required of you. He will have you fix your eyes so tightly on tilling the soil that you forget that man cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him by God. As Solomon says, the builders build in vain if God is not in it. A third lie that we must be on guard and not be deceived by, is the lie that there are things that can offer me greater satisfaction than what God has prepared for me." Part of the allure of sin, part of the reason we still give in to it, is because it has pleasure. Sin is fun. Stolen bread tastes sweet. And the trinkets of this world are shiny. But the sweetness soon turns into bitterness, and the end result we see is death. The pleasures of sin only serve to ensure the destruction of the sinner. So we must not be deceived. Instead, we must hunger and thirst for something greater, really for someone greater. And so we must equip our hearts with the tools of resistance That God has supplied for us. And that is what Moses outlines for us in verses 18 through 25. Here we see Moses equipping the people with tools to resist these deceptions of sin. Or maybe perhaps more positively we might say he's equipping the people with tools to love and serve the Lord the way he is worthy of. And so these, as we read this, these are essential tools for us in equipping our own hearts for obedience and cooperation with the spirit that is in us. The first tool that I want to bring your attention to, which Moses puts in our hands, is God's word. In verse 18, he says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. God reveals himself to his people through his word. He creates through his word. He acts on his word. His word equips his people to resist the deceptive allure of sin. And through his word, God teaches us the way we should go. I would love to live my life with a little GPS to just kind of pointing me which way to go. God's word is meant to supply us in a deeper way than that. Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? So how can, how can a young how can you guard yourself from such deceptions? Well, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word instructs us It keeps us, it reveals to us his majesty and his glory, and it dims our affections for the deceptive allure for sin. That is why the psalmist says that we are to hide God's word in our heart, to meditate on it day and night. That is how a young man may keep his way pure, he says. Moses tells the people to bind themselves to God by laying his word to heart. Like fine gold and imperishable riches. If we are to resist sin and walk according to God's commands, then we must spend time in God's word, laying it to heart, believing it, and entrusting ourselves to it. The second tool that Moses gives us is an instruction to share God's word, his teaching, his commands, his work with others. So take in the riches of God and share them with others. Moses specifically tells the people to teach these things to their children. He tells them to incorporate God's word and his commands into the very fabric of everyday life, to speak of them to their children, talking of them when they sit in their homes, when they walk along the way, and when they lay down to their, to sleep and rise again. Moses tells the people to write these commands on their doorposts of their houses and on the gates. And in verse 21, he says that they are to do this so that their days may be long and that the days of their children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to their fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. Now, if you walk into our house, you'll see, I think it's a very good thing to have Scripture visible in your house. not because it's a magical incantation, as some people treat it, but it, because it is a way to fix your mind and your heart on God's words and His commands, to treasure His word at all times. To catch sight of it when you are tempted to give in to that sin. To catch sight of his word which is meant to guide you. That is why you should have it on your wall. Not because it keeps demons out of your house. But because it keeps you tethered to Jesus. And because it encourages others. Having God's word close at hand prompts contemplation of the truth and meditation of God. At times it convicts. And at times, it instructs. Instruction is the main thing that Moses is getting at here. God's word endures forever. The commands to love the Lord and obey him, that is a command that is for all generations. Moses wants to see future generations of God's people thriving as their parents teach them how to walk in the fear of the Lord. Not just speaking to them about it, but living it out in front of them. Parents cannot believe for their children, but they do have a duty from God to show their children the beauty of God through the way they live and talk and even breathe. I have found that one of the greatest tools for learning and being a student of the Bible to grow in my faith and my love for Christ is to teach and instruct someone else in it trying to explain how Jesus is both God and man to a four-year-old takes effort and focus. It takes familiarity with God's word to to explain it to him in a way he can understand and yet in a way that is still accurate. It, It deepens my own appreciation for God and his words, for how he has communicated himself to us in babblings like speaking to a toddler and yet accurate things so that we may know and thrive through a true knowledge with God. I find that I grow in my own love and affection for God as I see someone else come to see something of the glory of God, and you see their their eyes just light up. And for the first time, they see something about God they have never seen before, and they love him. Sorry, being a pastor, that's one of the big perks. I get to do that a lot. I love seeing that. I love seeing people love God and you are called to be teachers of that to each other to teach your children in the way to explain these things and to speak of these things to others you can't do that if you're not doing the first one but because we've been called to the second one we must do the first one i want to encourage you all to consider serving in gospel projects it will grow you as a teacher and it will grow you in your affection for God. You will appreciate how long-suffering God is with you. (laughs) Don't pass on this opportunity. Study and search God's word, not so that you can just hoard treasure for yourself, but so that you may share this boundless treasure with others. Search God's word so that it literally pours out of you, so that as you're talking to someone, your love for Jesus is something they just can't ignore. And whether they love it or hate it, It's something that is a light shining into them from you. Weave it into the fabric of your day. Grow in your affection for the Lord by sharing it with others. A third tool that Moses equips us with is a call to seek first the kingdom of God. This is the final tool I want to bring your attention to. Seek first the kingdom of God. In verses 22 through 25, Moses tells the people that if they are careful to keep the commandment, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him. You see that covenant language there? You see the way that husbands and wives are meant to cling to each other? I love you. I want to know you. I want to honor you. Those are good things. Moses says that as they do this, all the other aspects of God's good blessings will fall into place. Seek this first and all these other things will be added to you. When Israel entered the land, they did not conquer by their own power. They did not conquer by sheer force. They conquered because the Lord went with them and they followed him. He gave them the land. He put their foot on the necks of their enemies. He blessed them with all the good things that he said he would give them. In telling the people to keep this commandment, to love God, to walk in his ways, and to hold fast in faithfulness to him, Moses was teaching the people to prioritize God and to trust him for all his good blessings. This is the essence of what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. And it is what Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 6, verse 33. He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is faith that treasures God and Christ above all else and trusts God's faithfulness to provide as he says he will. When we treasure God and his kingdom and his righteousness, We are embracing the priorities that King Jesus sets for us, and we are equipped to live in full reliance on him. All the things that Moses describes in the rest of this passage, the driving out of these nations, the the territory being given over to the people, the dread that will fall on the enemy nations that might otherwise pursue them, all that is what God says he was going to do to care for Israel. For their own part, Moses tells the people to fear the Lord, to trust him, to obey him, And all these other things, Moses says, will come because God is a God who provides for his people. He is a good shepherd. It is difficult sometimes to trust that God is going to keep those promises. It is a difficulty that is not founded on fact since God has always kept his promises And shown himself to be faithful. No, the difficulty to trust God to provide for those things is a difficulty that comes within ourselves, within our own short sightedness. We have this need to feel as if we are in charge, as if we have control of it, that we can do something and get what we want. But that is not the charge we receive from Moses here. No, we receive a charge to entrust ourselves to God, to seek Him first, to rest in the truth of the gospel. Yes, to obey Him, not as a way of earning our place in God's household, but rather as living the way that God's children are meant to do, to love Him, because that is the way of holiness. God's covenant with Israel came with certain conditions. They were conditions that were not meant to restrict them, but rather to equip them and to distinguish them as people who belonged to him. God was gracious with Israel, not just in the way he rescued and redeemed them, not just in the way that he blessed them and made them into a great people, not just in the way he gave them an inheritance with blessings they didn't deserve, not just in the way that he called them out and set his own name on them, not just in the way that he taught them his ways and called them to reflect his own faithful love to them and to love him and treat in the way they loved him and treated others, But even in this, that when they transgressed his commands, even when they did not love him with their whole heart, even when they tried to take control into their own hands, he provided an atoning sacrifice to cleanse them of their guilt. Ever caught that about the law? That the law, even as it says, live this way or die, it also says, here's a sacrifice because I know you can't keep it. God gave that offering, showing that he is sovereign and yet he is personal. He is holy and gracious. He is just and loving. God gave his son, born as a man, born under the law, to satisfy its demands, to rescue and redeem his people, to atone for our transgressions to fulfill all hope and all faith so that, as the scriptures say, whoever trusts in him will not die, will not perish, but have everlasting life. God calls you this morning to trust in him, to receive the blessings of the new covenant we have in the precious blood of Christ, to walk in holiness with him, being equipped with his word and his spirit, to resist all deception. Praise God for his mercy and grace. Brothers and sisters, this is the way that God has called us to walk. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless. And the greatest picture of that, Lord, is in the way that you sent Jesus into the world, even as a baby, that you did that. You didn't send him as a fully grown man. You didn't send him straight to the cross but he lived with perfect obedience so that he could be the new and better Adam for us and offer a sacrifice that is able to atone and make us right with you. And Father, as a gift of his grace, as a gift of your grace, you have given new hearts and your own spirit to dwell in your people, to live in such a way so that we, may, we no longer have to say, know the Lord, but that we may know you personally, even as you are transcendent and gracious and amazing and majestic, breathing out the stars, calling them all by name, directing all the, even the smallest things that we're not even aware of, and yet knowing the very hairs that are on our head and caring for us so that not one can fall to the ground apart from your will. Father, this, this month, this as we celebrate Christmas, help us to have hearts that love you, that trust you, and obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.